we'll we'll get to um, life on our planet. But I'm always curious about everyone's journey, how they started their journey in whatever field in the filmmaking it is. You know, and yourself being in uh, visual effects, uh, just run that by uh, how it all began, what inspired you, and your paths that you have taken to be where you are. It's a pretty unusual one, really, because. Uh... As you can see now, I've turned my video on. I'm not a spring chicken, so I actually, <laughs> I actually started um, as an engineer. I mean, I've got a degree in mechanical engineering, mm -hmm. uh, which obviously is a pretty technical subject, albeit a very creative one, of course, because engineers are responsible for most of the made objects around us that we yep. use today. Even though we forget that, <laughs> um, and I was very much obsessed with the motor car growing up and still am actually uh and so i pursued that career and i went to work in detroit in the early 1990s right um designing bits of car uh, mm -hmm. initially and right. that it turned out that the software that we were using which was very very expensive as were the machines at the time mm -hmm. to do pre-production work on cars and pre-visualize vehicle shapes and engineering uh, problems right. got co-opted into filmmaking. So there was a weird junction at which we were essentially using the same technology, um, very, very similar, more similar than it is now. I mean, they still coexist now, but in those days it was less specific for the two disciplines. Um, and I'd worked in Detroit for four years, I think, and I wanted to move back to the UK. And there was a small users group of people. Right. And I happened to know the guy um, in the UK, and he was ironically called Gareth Edwards. Not the Gareth Edwards, so this different Gareth okay. Edwards. Um, <laughs> although I, I, um, the other Gareth Edwards worked in the UK in the early 90s doing the same thing as well. But anyway, uh, I found this guy <laughs> And the other Gareth Edwards, and he says, do you, do you know how to operate the software? I was like, absolutely. I said, are there any jobs going in the UK? And he said, well, it's funny you should say that, but Kodak have just hired me to start a visual effects facility called CineSight. Can you send me some of the work that you've done um, to look over anyway? So I sent him some of the things that I'd done sort of previous engineering wise. Mm-hmm. And he said, he phoned me back the next day and said, I've got you a plane ticket, come on the plane for an interview. And that was how I entered the film business. Wow. Because it wasn't even, it, visual effects wasn't a thing. There was, you know, maybe one course in the UK, possibly that touched on it at university. So it wasn't an aspiration you could have in 1994. Um, so it happened slightly at random, as you said. And and that was it. So I was, you know, one of the first few employees of CineSight in the UK. I mean, they had a facility here in um, in the states in Los Angeles, and that was it. That was how my career started. So on a, a on a random phone call, if you believe <laughs> it, I often say uh, to people, I wouldn't give myself a job today. You know, it, it it's it's true. In every time I speak to people, whether it's for the podcast. Uh, even my journey, everybody has just kind of popped into this thing out of nowhere unexpectedly, or even, you know, some cases knowingly, but even when you know it, you go through the most unexpected paths and that you don't realize are going to take you there. 
So I have always find that very exciting and fascinating more than anything else, because we all have journeys. We all have uh, paths that we take, which may not seem the right ones at the time, but in hindsight, they always are. Yeah, it turned out, I mean, obviously it turned out to be an excellent decision and, you know, it's been an amazing career, really. Um, you know, it, it beats working most of the time. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And um, And what projects have you worked on that I would probably know of or the audience uh, watching and listening would know of in terms of your career over the years? Um, well, certainly at the beginning, a lot, a lot of things that have, have now, you know, gone down into law. So one of my favourites from the beginning was Space Jam. The first oh, I love that Jam. movie. Yeah, it was such a great, it was such a great movie. It was hard to make at the time. I mean, it was ninety six, I think, when we did that. Yep, and that was nearly I remember almost that. taking because almost every shot in the film is visual effects, um, and I did the whole practice CG. Um, oh wow built and rendered it um which you know it was, it was a fairly big sequence in the in the film and and hard work but yeah looked great it was great to work on but you know privileged to work on that movie it was really good fun um i worked on the nice. very first mission impossible some composting on that um mm. armageddon a few shots on that we came in at the end some... and did some bits and pieces so big stuff in the early days and more recently i supervised the first season of outlander which is a which is a surprisingly big hit um certainly with a certain group of people um altered carbon agent carter lots of telly stuff um alan partridge film the list goes the list goes on i think you know there's over 100 projects but um latterly more based on streaming and and episodic work rather than feature films um, yeah, just because they're, they're on the honest truth is actually they're normally slightly more fun to work on in visual effects. Right. No, those are some great titles. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned Space Jam. My kids saw it, I would guess, probably five years ago. And then we saw it again a um, couple of years ago. And then the new one came out, um, which it was like, I, I just walked out after 10 minutes because it didn't have that heart that the original one did. I'm not even talking about visual effects. I'm just talking in terms of, you know, the original one didn't really have a riveting story or anything, but there was just something there that connected. I think it was maybe a combination of visual effects with the live action, uh, Michael Jordan, of course. Um, it, it was, it's, it's a very cool film. And I, you know, in those times, the only two films I think that came with that kind of a, uh, you know, live action versus animation mix was uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which was six, seven years before. And there was uh, the one with the, I forget the name, Cool World with Kim Basinger. Uh, I don't know if you remember that film. So it yeah, was, it was, yeah, so it was, it was a great film. I mean, just the, the moment you mentioned it, I had a smile on my face because it's, it's a, it's something I remember seeing in theaters. It's something I, I didn't even care for basketball. I, I didn't even care for Michael Jordan, but I truly enjoyed it because I was a huge Bucks fan and Daffy Duck and you know all those uh, characters fans. So uh, it yeah. has a real charm, I think. Even though, as you say, you know there was the plot's pretty pretty loose. Yeah. 
yeah. But actually, the film is still charming. And you mentioned Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Ed Jones, who was um, in charge of Sydney Spy at the time, also was one of the key people in. I think he won an Oscar for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Actually, I think so too. Um, yeah, but he he was certainly both of those projects. Um, yeah, yeah, a nice That's legacy awesome. film to have worked. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. And I think at the time. Uh, I don't know if Emblemination was involved because Spielberg executive produced it. Disney was involved. Uh, and I know Emblemination before DreamWorks was formed was based out of the UK until after everybody moved over to DreamWorks when DreamWorks was opened. Uh, but yeah, you know, some great stuff in the 90s and the 80s. And uh, I always I always wonder about the stuff, even if it was not that great you know from a storytelling standpoint and we all still remember like when i say we all i mean like people in our age group is it because it reminds us of our childhood or is it because you know it was it was really that great so it's an interesting psychological thing that you know i always wonder about that why do we like things similar things that came out back then and similar things that are coming out now at least for me I don't resonate with it in any way. Uh, you know, story, no story, visual effects, no visual effects. But anyways, that's just a thought process. <laughs> yeah, maybe there's a little bit of rose-tinted glasses there. It was quite funny because <laughs> the, first, the first film that I did at CineSight was called Lawnmower Man 2, which was epically bad in every way. Um, and we've been on this long filming trip and there are quite a few people who that film was made around about when they were born who were on the, on the trip yeah. and they were like it can't be that epically bad I was like no no it really is uh, anyway we re-watched it this week um, and I thought it was as epically bad as I remember they thought it was, <laughs> they thought it was extremely funny because it was so bad um, but yeah. yeah luckily that one has been buried in the mists of time but if any um, listeners want to dig out Lawnmower Man too, and you can get to the finish of it, you should be proud of yourself. It's quite hard to get through. I'm probably going to make an effort uh, to watch it on the plane. We'll see how long that lasts. Um, it's so bad. <laughs> don't waste. Don't waste those hour and a half of your life. Uh, and uh, you know, moving on to your current. Um, your current projects, of course, life in our planet. How uh, had you done? And I, I had you done any kind of uh, nature-based series beforehand? I'm assuming you had done something similar, but there isn't really anything similar in that nature except the Apple series, to my knowledge. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it's it not really been a subject. Obviously, I've done creature animation before, but not yeah, in yeah. Of working with wildlife filmmakers I mean that's what was the, the the real hook for me and the extraordinary thing about the project is we made it exactly like a wildlife documentary um you know e even the filming there there is six people on the crew I mean there's normally six people on ca in catering and the things that I work on I mean yeah. <laughs> so there's the you know going from that to being in the field where there's the director the DOP myself um, an assistant producer and a couple of other people to help out um, is quite quite incredible and, and quite thrilling it's because it's quite freeing because you can be much yeah. more mobile you can shoot faster um, but it's a, a whole different genre of cinematography I mean Jamie McPherson 
uh, he shot most of it um, and is Sophie's partner who you also had on your podcast um, yeah. you know he and I had to have a, and have formed a really good working uh, relationship and how to film it because he the, the, there's no discipline in wildlife photography for a start I mean as you can yeah. imagine what happens is they go out to some extraordinary place to film something they hit go on the camera and, and hopefully they capture whatever amazing thing is taking place and then they sort out their story afterwards editorially often whereas the yeah. process of visual effects <clears throat> you know i want i want slates and shot numbers and you know balls and charts and all this technical information so it's quite a right. learning process for them and um, you can't just turn up and hit go with visual effects yeah that's something that sophie mentioned when i was talking to her that how jonathan told us that just make sure you get what you want to get the way you want to get it because there's no like going back it's just not like you know um you know but, but with other films you can like you know big budget films that you've worked on you know you have the budget like okay let's just redo this or there's some buffer zone in terms of budgeting but with something like this six people crew and you know the budget is always tight and i and i know how that is it's it's tough uh but you know that's the thing with limited crew there's that freedom, but the budgets are always tighter. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a double-edged sword. And obviously, um, it, for the amount of creatures that we had to build and put in the show, the budget was extremely tight. So Sophie's right. I probably annoyed them terribly by going, no, oh. no, you can't do that. No, <laughs> you can't do that shot. You can't do this. So we, we did have um, more restrictions than the normal Um but they were brilliant. I mean, the, the whole team, you know, working with Silverback, who are obviously, you know, arguably the world's best nature documentary makers, teaming up with ILM and Amblin was a great mix of people to have on board. But the budget was tight. And so, yeah, shortcuts had to be yeah. taken and decisions made very early. We, we couldn't waste any money. That's the thing. That's why I had drilled into them is like, we cannot waste money. We can't do shots that don't make it on screen. We just don't have that luxury. Um, it's all got to be up there. Every time we turn over that camera, we've got to think, yeah, this shot is going to get in the cut. Yeah. You know what, what I find fascinating because it's a new genre and I think it's only going to get bigger um, something again I was talking to Sophie yesterday whether we like it or not you know who knows in five ten years all the nature documentaries might be like that with the AI and everything um, I hope not but you just the way things are going I mean I wouldn't be surprised if things go in that direction at least um, but you know what I what I really found interesting and obviously it's you know you see visual effects in films like Jurassic Park uh, who Framed Roger Rabbit, Space Jam, and all the movies that you worked on. And it's a little bit different than compared to, well, I would say it's a lot different than compared to like nature docs. Because one thing I noticed is, you know, there'll be shots uh, where the, the camera would dolly, uh, you know, sideways, and it will go behind a tree, and then it will get a revealing shot, so on and so forth. And just to plan that out, you know, from the production standpoint, and obviously then in post when you you guys you guys are working on it, and the timing of it and the messaging that comes out of that timing is exactly the way you in, intended it, intended it. 
was there any time difficulties in some of the shots where the timing was a bit off to send the message that that was intended to send from this from the story and if so where was that in any of the series in any of the episodes yeah i mean it, it happened not not frequently but definitely there were shots we did because obviously we're having to frame and move the camera with an imaginary <laughs> imaginary star if you like um mm. and so you know even though we we knew the sizes of all the creatures and we knew roughly how fast they moved and we would sometimes if they were human scale reenact it ourselves you know it's quite a lot of me crawling along the ground being a lystrosaur or something else um you can get that timing wrong and we did occasionally um <clears throat> what we would normally do in that situation is it's generally to do with whether it was the shot long enough or framed wide enough. And, I, and there are probably 20 shots in the film where uh, ILM, we've had to doctor the whole environment. So we've basically remade, you know, the top third of frame out of something else or other shots that we did. So there oh, are okay. a few shots in where we, we physically basically widened the camera or moved it faster or slowed it down so that we could fit the, intended animation into the into the space that was available with the creature being at the right scale um i finished it so long ago i can't give you that many <laughs> no it's okay I, I, think, I was just i think there's a couple of t-rex shots where we had to do that because it's such a big animal um you know it's 14 meters long it's hard to visualize a 14 meter long creature it's but it's big <laughs> i can tell you yeah. that um yeah so right. yeah, so there there were shots like like that, and also what we did. You were talking about you know tracking through and revealing with creatures behind a foreground element, which is is very much um, a part of the the nature of filming wildlife. Is that often they mm -hmm. don't get a clear shot of the creature, so it becomes part of the visual language of the people who are used to watching when they see wildlife is that you don't get a clear headshot because, you know, the cameraman's in the Serengeti and there just happens to be stuff in the way. Um, and so we we would create that foreground stuff, of course, because that's all blue screened elements um, to be able to put them in front of the, the creatures. So some of that stuff is artifice as well, where we've deliberately shot blue screen elements with Jamie. Mm -hmm. um, but to give us that feeling where we get those reveals and a bit like we're, you know, we have that window into the creature's world rather than just a, you know, a clear cut thing that you'd have in a drama where you'd not obscure somebody's face for obvious reasons. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's, 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 that's something I've always enjoyed about the nature documentaries and, you know, it's just that level of intimacy and obviously, you know, when you're watching it, it seems like it was a piece of cake, but obviously, you know, I, I remember watching behind the scenes of, I think it was planet earth, the first one, uh, the series. Um, and at that time I realized I'm like, I think that was like 13 years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Um, there was a sequence of, um, plants growing. Uh, I don't remember the details, but it was basically a 360 degree where the camera would go from the branch of the limb of the tree come down go around and go through other branches and come back up and that entire shot that lasted i would like to guess 10 to 20 seconds was a year-long project 
And uh, it was, you know, it's just, it's amazing the amount of patience and people on field, especially for nature docs have, because it's not that easy and to be able to pull that off. And then if something goes wrong, the shot's gone. You know, it's like you can't tell the giraffe or zebra to redo it or move back. And it, it, you just have no, to read exactly. it out. exactly. I mean, that's the thing. They, you know, they are very patient people. And, yeah, some sometimes, you know, they'll go out into the field and not come back. But, you know, they're obviously, without giving a spoiler away, there's a, you know, there's a sequence in this, a wildlife sequence, not a visual effects one, where, uh, there's a certain creature in it, and there's a key moment. And actually, they don't they don't get the key moment. They get they get the before and after the key moment. But you know, it's just that that particular moment of what happened yeah. wasn't caught cool on camera. Um, and you know that can happen. You know, and if you spend oh, six yeah. months trying to get it, so that's that's it. That's what you you have to live with the fact that it didn't quite work out in the way you wanted. Um, so they enjoyed working with me because at least I could get it to work out the way they wanted it pretty much all the time. Yeah. No, the, you know, capturing the moment, it's so key and it's in any kind of dark form. I, and I remember about 10 years ago uh, when I when I made my first documentary, 10 years ago or 13 years ago, um, I remember like, you know, you're rolling and you're like, okay, this is getting a little repetitive and you stop rolling and then the, something happens right there like literally you stop rolling what you are waiting for happens naturally you're like shit so you know the 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 lesson is you just keep rolling you know you just don't know what that second that you may need it may pop up and that's just the way the murphy's law works there's always something that you'll end up missing and you have to work around it yeah so obviously when that when they work they they use pre-roll on the camera which for the viewers who don't know basically means it's sort of recording all the time a bit like yeah. a dash cam yeah so you always know that it that you can get what you need so yeah um, i think a lot of great wildlife documentaries have have been caught because of pre-roll <laughs> because of pre-roll with stuff happening yeah 100 percent, 100 percent, and what when you um was when you got the footage was it coming in chunks or was it like when ev- when each episode was over that's when you were starting it or was it just all over the place um it we filmed it we didn't film it in in order in any real order so it came in as sequences basically at random mm-hmm. depending on how we filmed them so the very first thing we filmed um we filmed in chile in the Atacama before lockdown. Um, mm. And so that was the, that was by nature of the fact it was the first thing we did came in. So it came in in sequences. Yeah. They got turned over in a fairly arbitrary order, depending on when we filmed them really. Um, mm. But nice. So that the nice thing about the show is, is that it, it does stick with that wildlife format in that we tell discrete little six or seven minute stories about, the creatures and how they fit into the overarching um story of, of you know life on earth which is what what made the story really great i think is that you know that there is that continuous line even though bits of it fall off from the start to where we are now which is why why it works so well i think because you you get you can get involved in an actual story whereas uh although prehistoric planet is a great documentary doesn't have the same story arc continuing through the whole thing that 
that we're lucky enough to have with telling the story of all of life on Earth. Yeah, and I, I won't lie when I say this. When I first saw the trailer, like I remember the opening images when the T-Rex attacks the Triceratops. I My first reaction was, did we just not see this on Apple? You know, like literally that was just my first reaction. And then when I saw the trailer, I'm like, okay, this is interesting. But when I started the series, it was just completely different and, you know, nothing like prehistoric planet. Again, this only similarity is there's just some dinosaurs and that's it. Like there's nothing else comparable um, at all. And I found this way more interesting. I, I didn't finish prehistoric planet completely. I think I probably finished most of the season for first season um, with my kids. And uh, now my kids are watching this one. They're on episode five, I think, and they're really enjoying it. Right. Yeah, I think I think that the, the thing, great thing about Life on Our Planet is the story sort of gets more involving as you go along, a bit like when you watch a drama. So I think, mm. you know, you watch the first episode, you're a bit like, well, you know, and then you you get the hook in. So I hope, you know, listeners who are doing it, I would say, you know, if you get through it go through episodes one and two and episode one is a bit of a sort of everything um to to try yeah. and get you started from a position but once you get past that i think you get into the meat of the story it was really great it goes along and we deliberately part of amblin's input was to have to try and design cliffhangers um at the end of the series to go oh this is you know as you would do in a drama to go I've got to watch next week's now to find out what happens with this. Yeah. And at the end of this particular episode. So, and hopefully that's moderately successful. And, 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 no, and that worked because maybe that's the reason. I mean, I can't remember it now. That's the reason I probably kept watching it on the plane because, you know, normally on a flight, like when you're, you know, five, six hour flight, you get tired and you want to do different things. You want to listen to music, you want to take a nap you know, a bunch of different things, but it was just like a continuous thing, like, you know, four and a half, maybe five episodes, my memory serves me, right? Um, yeah, and it it was just, you know, so well done. And one thing I, 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 I noticed, so I was always looking for, and just because the filmmaker in me, which footage is real? I mean, some of it was obvious, right? Like the dinosaurs or prehistoric creatures or prehistoric insects and bugs. But most of the stuff, I I couldn't differentiate between you know, the way the movements were of um, any prehistoric creature versus the current creatures, like, you know, whether it's a dinosaur, uh, sorry, giraffe or zebra. Uh, yeah, there you could tell maybe if you looked really, really closely. But I think the challenge that I found, at least where it became very obvious for me, was a very first episode. I think it was, I don't remember the, it was under the water, the very first um uh, giant fish that you guys show. Oh yeah, kind of that's yeah. I I thought that was a because I know doing effects in waters is not that easy. It's like a very challenging thing. Like, did was that something that you were satisfied with as a just an individual? Like the, the way it came out, how challenging was that to put that off, pull that off? Really challenging, actually. The Dunkelosteus is the name of the creature, a big bony okay. fish. <laughs> and yeah really really that was a quite hard creature to animate because it is quite prehistoric um and so I, and it's much bonier than quite a lot of modern fish that we're used to so the big front section of it is armored and so that bit doesn't move very much because it's, it's completely rigid 
it's also a giant creature that they i think estimates vary but we made one that was about eight meters long in the end um, mm. and you would think animating a fish would, would be really straightforward but there's something about the motion that's very hard to capture especially at scale um, yeah so we both needed to move quite quickly to keep the pace up but also to be re- realistic um and I think maybe if you picked up, maybe it's a little bit faster. I, I watched it again the other day and, yeah. and thought, yeah, could have been a bit fast for the scale. Um, maybe that's, that's what's wrong with it. I mean, we spend a lot of time doing that sequence because it's also one of the few sequences where everything is visual effects. So we didn't shoot any live action yeah, photography. Uh, right, I was going to say that. Think, yeah. 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 Because you got because we can't track the camera, so we we if you imagine when we make these virtual creatures, we have to put them into the scene, and you know their feet have to stick to the ground, and they have to be moving correctly in the environment, and we have to create a virtual camera to do that. Um, but you can't do it in the open ocean because nothing stays still, so you have no reference point to work yeah. with. Everything's just around. Uh, so that was one of the ones where we actually had to make everything. But yeah, super yeah. challenging to do to do that big creature and it's and it's not something that people are used to seeing either it's quite an odd looking thing so Hmm. definitely definitely one of the more challenging bits is it fair to say that was something that took the longest or at least one of the scenes that took the longest uh it would be the fairest to say it was one of the scenes that went the most over budget okay (laughs) fair enough yeah that's yeah. that's long so, then yeah <laughs> yeah in relative terms it took longer than it should have done yeah <laughs> yeah and i i wonder you know like i because human there have been so many nature documentaries you know especially in the last 10 years 15 years um that human eye has kind of become accustomed to what's underneath the water right had that not been the case i believe that people would probably assume that's how it is underwater. Like that's how you film it. I think because people have become so immune to it, so accustomed to it, it's not it's not that it's people can pick up things now very, very quickly, especially even underwater. Yeah, I mean I think that's true of all the things that we did is that it, your familiarity with observing things, it, you almost don't realize, but subconsciously you, you understand quite a lot about the world and so making a for instance making the smilodon cat is is harder than making some of the other prehistoric creatures because you know how that thing should move and what it should do and the expressions it should make and how its ears move and all those things because you're familiar with watching domestic cats or indeed wildlife documentaries of lions and tigers which are pretty similar um, yeah so the closer the thing is to like the human experience the, the much more difficult they are to realize effectively so a t-rex is essentially fairly easy we we have no experience of huge bipedal (laughs) um reptile things wandering around well they're dinosaurs not reptiles but um yeah so they are a little bit more forgiving than something like a fish which everyone knows what a fish does you know you've seen lots of them yeah right um how big was your team in the visual effects department? Um, pretty varied, really. I mean, I, I can't remember the exact number of people that touched the show, but it would be between 100 and 200, and probably at, the, at its peak, 
we had sort of 70 or 80 people working on the show. Um, Incredible. The end. But it was a very long period of time. It turned out to be, you know, the production from uh, of when we filmed in Chile to the end, you know, it was at least three years. And I, I'd been talking about the show for a good 18 months, two years before we actually put pen to paper. So, yeah, extraordinarily long time for a yeah. project well, that we well, COVID had a lot to do with it, right? So, I mean, that pushed yeah. things. <clears throat> it did have, you know, slap back and bang in the middle of COVID. Um, yeah. And most of the work was actually done remotely, which is also pretty challenging for a visual effects supervisor. I mean, I like to get all the people in a room and, <laughs> and point at stuff in person and, and talk through the creative issues. So, yeah, it's, it's very, very much harder to do that remotely. Um you know, a lot more time consuming because you have to speak to people individually, really. Um, it's much harder to do it en masse. Uh, so that was, yeah, one of the more challenging bits that, you know, if I could turn back the clock, obviously, I don't think anyone would want COVID, but um, it definitely made the, pro the project more difficult. I remember handing out keyboards and and um, computer monitors at ILM on the day that London was shut down basically to send people home so we had to send 500 people home from the office in one day mm. and then get them all working from home which is not yeah. an arbitrary task yeah no that was uh it was it's almost it's almost a blur to me now all that time period and i would like to keep it that way <laughs> i don't i don't want to go through that again um but uh, what was the the show came out last week yes um, yes, and, and uh, I should say this: the series came out last week. Uh, what was the deadline in terms of from your team to have everything done by, so that it gets you know picture locked, basically? Well, actually, it was it was really interesting. We did we obviously are not in control of of when Netflix schedule things, but we we finished the show a year ago. Oh wow! Um, yeah. Yeah, so it was finished way, way, our stuff was finished way, way before it it was needed. I mean, and we we didn't know what the scheduling was going to be, so, but that was our deadline, yeah. So we, we finished sort of October and troubled on a bit into November, but over a year ago. Um, yeah, it's, so, <laughs> yeah, I've been working, working on the thing I'm currently here filming for, for at least since the beginning of this year anyway, or just a few months into this year so yeah it's quite weird i was back on the road in filming in in april this year so yeah a long a long time between us finishing and it being on yeah it. yeah i wonder that why that was i mean i'm sure it was like marketing reasons or you know the audience and yeah maybe, maybe the yeah, christmas knows thanksgiving approaching in us and christmas approaching um but yeah, no, it that's that's interesting, and and for me, one thing I I, I truly enjoyed among everything else was you know the, we're moving on from visual effects a little bit, is you know obviously Morgan Freeman's narration, um you know that really did it, but also the the script was really well done, but the sheer amount of footage there was, I mean if you start counting the number of shots, 
I mean, it's crazy. I, I, I do that anyways, but for this particular film, it's a little bit different because you have to add these visual effects. It's not like, you know, you have a zebra running in or a lion catching a deer throughout, in and out. But just to kind of go through all that, making finding the right moments and adding those visual effects, it's just, it just must be a daunting task. I mean, you probably learned a lot uh, from this. Yeah, I mean, I think a shot count-wise... Certainly, one of the biggest shows I've ever done because obviously it's directed. I mean, Outlander was probably similar because that was sixteen episodes. But um, yeah, you, this is it, you know it's it's eight. They're not they're not hour longs, but they're, you know forty five fifty minutes. So it ended up being nine hundred shots, which is yeah, that's a lot of shots. It's like mm -hmm. making an animated yeah. <laughs> feature almost by the time you're done in terms of the shot count. Um, I luckily because it was spread over a long time and it came in piecemeal. It was, it never felt so daunting because it, it always comes in a discrete chunk where you're doing one. So, you know, you've got the terrible versus Smilodon scene and that's 40 shots. So you just go, okay, that's 40 shot chunk. We'll, <laughs> we'll do this chunk. We'll get that done, you know, yeah. and then we're doing fish. So, it, I mean, it's a big challenge. It's a, <clears throat> we, Every time we version something, it gets reviewed and it gets a little internal number. And we we reviewed over 60,000 versions um, wow. of shots. Yeah. Which that, that's, is, <laughs> it's a lot that's of crazy number. Of looking well, it's not even yeah. just the hours and the crazy amount of footage and time, but it's just you get, you know, it's just like editing a feature. You get sick and tired of looking at the same thing over and over again and you're your your creativity kinds you know kind of fades out on that particular thing like how much can i do or what can what should i do but again that's that's why creative people are creative people right so yeah i mean i i by the end of it i definitely had what i call decision fatigue um that's a great word you, for it yeah yeah you're making so many decisions that in my everyday life uh, my my poor wife had to, had to put up with me going. Look, I literally I can't make a decision about anything. Don't ask me whether I want, <laughs> you know, my toast buttered or not. I can't make another decision. I'm out of decisions. <laughs> Just bring it or whatever. Um, but yeah, it takes a little while to recover. It takes it takes a few weeks to get over decision fatigue. But um, yeah, I don't blame you. I don't blame you at all. And it it. it it can be daunting, but at the same time, when the results do come out and people start watching it, then that thing goes out the way. You know, I'm glad I did what I did. And that feeling of people praising your work or even just watching it, not necessarily praising it, you know, it's, it's it means a lot to an artist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, just the process of creating a, a product that people are hopefully able to enjoy it is, yeah. is brilliant. I mean, it's a lot that, you know, I, I don't take for granted I'm very privileged to be able to do that um you know it was pretty terrifying really for the show because the budget was very tight for the ambition and it, you know the the way the weight of it being ILM at the same time so you know I say to people that the expectations I I worked out just to scare myself that I think we have about something like one fifteenth of the money per screen minute that Jurassic Park has. Um, 
So you so you have to make something that's roughly approximate on about seven and a half percent of the money that you would have had you had you yeah. um, which is a pretty daunting task, and and hopefully you know it it stands up for the most part to that. I mean, obviously it's not as complicated as Jurassic Park, um, but it's a, it's different. It has different challenges. There's a lot of long lingering shots which you get in wildlife, which obviously you don't normally do in drama. It's quite cutting. Yeah. So there's nowhere to hide when you stick the camera in the face of a smilodon for a 45 second shot. I mean, it's fairly disturbing for a visual effect. <laughs> um, but yeah, fingers crossed we get away with it most of the time. Yeah. You know, speaking of Jurassic Park, did you see any of the films? You know, kind of just to get some not that you you know you need inspiration, but at the same time, like I, I always watch The Godfather before I start anything, just to kind of be in that you know mindset. Yeah, I mean I, I watched quite a few wildlife documentaries, interestingly. Um, okay. So which ones? Uh well, obviously Life on Our Planet Our Planet. Our Planet, which had been made by Silverback as well, which is a fantastic yeah. series, by the way. Still on Netflix. Yeah, um, Sophie was telling me about it. I got to watch it. Yeah, it's really, really good. Um, and Blue Planet, some of the things that they've made when they were at the NHU, the, the BBC, obviously all those mm. blue chip things. Um, and Jurassic, I have obviously seen multiple times. But I actually had to, actually had to put a glass wall up so David Vickery, my colleague, was making the most recent Jurassic World film at the same time oh, wow. as we were, were doing this. And I knew, we both knew that we had some overlapping creatures that do actually appear in both films. Um, and so we had to not deliberately not look at each other's work, really, because I was told in no uncertain terms that if it looked like anything from Jurassic, I'd be in big trouble. So... <laughs> um, I, don't, I didn't want to give myself that visual stimulation of seeing anything that Dave was doing at the same time as uh, a making loop, which was quite hard. So we'd go and have the occasional beer and, you know, complain about making dinosaurs, but try not to look at what we would, each other were doing. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And and I, not, not, now that I think about it, we're talking about Jurassic Park and we're talking about why did they delay it that long for them to release it? It makes sense now because um, as of September, there has been a massive promotion going on in UK and US and Canada for Jurassic Park, the original one, 30th anniversary. So I think they yeah. wanted to tie that in, you know, that same audience that excited about dinosaurs and Jurassic Park, kind of part of that that audience. My guess is that because it doesn't make any other sense to me for them to delay it that long. Um but uh, but yeah, Jurassic Park. I mean, it's it's one of the most amazing films ever made, uh, and and I I'm happy to tell you that there were none of the dinosaurs which I was hoping to would look like similar to the Jurassic Park. It didn't come through. So mission accomplished for you. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get fired. <laughs> <laughs> I sure hope not. I sure hope not. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, listen, Jonathan, this has been fantastic. Um, I'm sorry your flight's been cancelled. I I that works out. I I hope it works out, uh, and uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. I would love to speak to you about anything that you've done recently or in upcoming uh, future. Whatever you feel comfortable with, let me know. I'd love to have you on. I had a great time, and would love to uh, chat with you again. 
That would be great. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been delightful speaking to you. Pleasure is all mine, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. I'll see you Take again care. soon. Bye. Yep, for sure. Bye-bye.